Hello and welcome to the 10th and final episode of Season 1 of Bad Gays, a podcast where we uncover the dark side of gay men in history. I'm Hugh Lemmy, a writer and novelist. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, gay historian and member of the board of the Gay Museum in Berlin. And each episode we profile a different gay villain from history, looking at their life in context and how their sexuality informed their infamy. We want to complicate gay history by talking about evil people and complicated people. We're focusing on men because cis men are definitionally the most bad, and we want to ask why we don't remember our villains as well as we sometimes remember our heroes. So last week we talked about the killers Leopold and Loeb who allowed us to explore class and the medicalization of sexuality in early 20th century America. Who are we talking about this week, Hugh? This week we're talking about Roy Cohn. Yuck. Many of our listeners, I'm sure, will know Roy Cohn from his representation in Tony Kushner's epic two-part play about the AIDS crisis in New York called Angels in America, a gay fantasia on national themes, and also from Al Pacino's portrayal of that role in the 2003 miniseries that's based on the play. And if you've not seen Angels in America, I think we'd probably both recommend it highly. Absolutely. And in that play, Cohn is referred to as the pole star of human evil. <laughs> not inaccurately, I don't yeah. think. Roy Marcus Cohn was born in New York in 1927 into an observant Jewish family. His father was a judge, Albert C. Cohn, and he was influential in the Democratic Party in New York at the time. Cohn followed his father into law. He graduated from Columbia Law School by the age of 20, and so was actually too young to actually join the bar, but he was admitted to the bar on his 21st birthday. The very same day, his father pulled his strings in the Democratic Party to secure Cohn a job in the U.S. Attorney's Office, and there, Cohn's career as a communist witch hunter began. The late 40s and early 50s marked a change in the United States' relationship with its former World War II ally, the Soviet Union, and tensions following the carve-up of post-war Europe had reached a fever pitch, following the successful test of the Soviets' first nuclear weapon in 1949. So it was the start of the Cold War. In the US, this triggered a period of deep paranoia about the existence of both Soviet agents and domestic communist subversives in US society, and this effect was known as the Red Scare. This had happened before in the US. After World War I and the Russian Revolution, a combination of increased labour organising and a wave of patriotism clashed to produce a fear of communist radicals overthrowing the government and the American way of life. Now, following World War II, the blockade of West Berlin, the Chinese Civil War and the Korean War, there was a similar fear. As well as the Alien Registration Act, or Smith Act, which was a 1940 law which outlawed advocating the overthrow of the American government, concern turned to secret communists working within the federal government, whether as spies or not. The young Roy Cohn was integral in prosecuting many federal employees on these grounds. For example, he was on the prosecution team of William Remington, a government economist accused of espionage. Although Remington couldn't be proven guilty of the crime, he did lie twice under oath by denying he'd ever been a member of the Communist Party of the USA. He was convicted of perjury, was jailed in 1953, and was murdered in prison by anti-communists a year later. However, Cohn's most high-profile anti-communist case was the trial of the Rosenbergs. Julius Rosenberg was an engineer in the Army Signal Corps during the Second World War, and was accused, along with his wife Ethel, of having passed nuclear secrets to the Soviet Union. The trial was extremely controversial internationally, regarded by many as being explicitly anti-Semitic. International figures from Einstein to Frida Kahlo condemned the case. Jean-Paul Sartre called the trial, quote, a legal lynching which smears with blood a whole nation. By killing the Rosenbergs, you have quite simply tried to halt the progress of science by human sacrifice. Magic, witch hunts, autos de far, sacrifices. We are here getting to the point. Your country is sick with fear. 
you were afraid of the shadow of your own bomb, end quote. In doing so, Sartre got to the heart of the case, a national paranoia about their own destructive power. Cohn was an integral part of the prosecution. His examination on the stand of Ethel Rosenberg's brother, David Greenglass, helped secure the Rosenberg's conviction. Found guilty, they were sentenced to death, and on June 19th, 1953, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were executed in the electric chair in New York's Sing Sing Jail. For Cohn, the execution of the Rosenbergs was one of the greatest triumphs of his life. In his autobiography, he claims that not only was his examination vital to the conviction, but he also used his political influence to ensure his choice of both the judge and the chief prosecutor. Ugh. Yeah, and he met with the judge, Irving Kaufman, out of court in order to pressure him to sentence the Rosenbergs to death, despite, oh. despite the Justice Department and the FBI's objections. Oh, That's highly unethical behaviour, I'm sure you're aware, and that's typical of Cohn's style. Motherfucker. Yeah. Law was a weapon in a wide arsenal, not a tool for justice, and the aim was the furtherance of Roy Cohn's agenda above anything else. According to Alan Dershowitz in the LA Times, who is hardly a soft, lily-livered liberal, the Rosenbergs were, quote, guilty and framed. As a result of this role uh, in the trial of the Rosenbergs, the director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, became aware of Roy Cohn and his promise as a communist witch hunter. Well, there's another very bad gay. Yeah, maybe we can come to him in a future series. Hopefully. Uh, so he recommended his services to a Republican senator called Joseph McCarthy, who was, by this time, uh, famous for his attempts to find communist subversives in the federal government. In fact, so famous that the practice was already known as McCarthyism. McCarthy had been a pretty unremarkable senator until when, well into his first term, when he gave a speech in 1950 where he alleged he had the names of 205 communists who were known as such by the Secretary of State and yet were still working for the State Department. Uh, McCarthy's reputation exploded, as did the media attention, and the Senate organised a committee to investigate his claims, but even then the report of that committee claimed that his claims were a fraud and a hoax that were designed just to discredit a democratic administration. But nonetheless, his fame was undiminished within this general attitude environment of paranoia. In 1952, McCarthy described it as such in a speech... McCarthyism is Americanism with its sleeves rolled. His He's not wrong. That's the scary thing. Yeah. His pugnacious attitude was good radio, and it rode on the back of an idea of American masculinity as being no-nonsense no anti-leftism. As part of that attitude, McCarthy began what became known as the Lavender Scare, claiming that a conspiracy of homosexuals had infiltrated the federal government, and they were both a passive security risk due to the threat of blackmail but also an active, seditious element. According to a New York Times article at the time, the Republican national chairman, Guy George Gabrielson, said that, quote, sexual perverts who have infiltrated our government in recent years were perhaps as dangerous as the actual communists. And what's interesting is that this is only a couple years after um, a bunch of actual gay communists don't infiltrate the U.S. government, but do begin um, the first sort of lasting gay rights movement in the U.S. out in L.A. Um, and people who listen to our earlier episodes will remember we talked about this briefly, but um, the leaders of Mattachine initially had all been um, deeply embedded in the Communist Party in California, and it was this uh, environment of McCarthyist paranoia that led new members to kick them out of the organization because they were afraid of being associated with these seditious radicals. 
and not just being associated, but, you know, losing everything. Yeah. Well, this began a devastating campaign against gay men and women in the State Department and within the wider federal government. And it was far more widespread than the Red Scare in terms of people who were dismissed. Thousands lost their careers. The homosexual scare was built around the idea of gay men as alien or untrustworthy. Heterosexuality became a defining American value in itself, and homosexuality was inextricably linked to leftism and communism. It allowed homosexuality, which was already something that was subject to widespread moral opprobrium and disgust, to be used as a smear tactic against leftists, discrediting them and their views. McCarthy went so far as to say, quote, If you want to be against McCarthy, boys, you've got to be either a communist or a cocksucker. So should we print up the communist and cocksucker against McCarthy t-shirts now? Yeah, maybe we can put them on the Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting to note, too, um, how much of a change this attitude is. Um, during the Second World War, as the research of scholars like Alan Barabe has shown, there's a huge amount of homosexual um, activity in the army and the U.S. government at its highest levels, and um, to some extent it's tolerated. There's a famous story where during the Second World War, Eisenhower, who at that point is uh, the one of the head generals, uh, asks the head of the Women's Army Corps to compile a list because he's heard that there's this infiltration of lesbians into the Women's Army Corps and we have to get rid of all the lesbians. And she comes back to him and says, if you want to get rid of all the lesbians in the Women's Army Corps, uh, you can fire all of us starting with me. And uh, he didn't because they couldn't. So, you know, this is a real quick shift. And uh, I think for a lot of people who maybe had leftist sympathies or who were queer and who had joined... Um, government work as part of a kind of Roosevelt-era anti-fascist popular front fight, um, this would have been incredibly disorienting and incredibly damaging. And also, of course, I mean, it was just literally devastating to people to lose their jobs, to be publicly shamed, to be found in violation of the law, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think it can be seen as part of a kickback against New Deal American policy. Oh, absolutely. Um, and that's a thing that's going to continue with Roy Cohn, where, you know, as long as his rich friends get richer, he doesn't care what happens to people like him, whether it's Jews, whether it's gay people, yeah. whoever. Yeah. It's all collateral damage in the fight to make a few people richer. And the sad thing is they sort of won. Yeah. So by 1953, McCarthy had been given a seat uh, as chair of the United States Senate Homeland Security Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, or the PSI. And the idea was actually to give him a minor committee position rather than a position on the Internal Security Subcommittee, which was at that time the organisation that was charged with uncovering communists. But he managed to turn his committee into a witch-hunting committee. He was never actually involved with the House on American Activities Committee, which a lot of people relate him to. They do. And also, I'm going to be pedantic here and say it's the House Committee on Un-American Activities, and everyone always gets it wrong. There's my pedantic historian <laughs> moment for the episode. I apologize to you and to our listeners. So on J. Edgar Hoover's recommendation, McCarthy employed Roy Cohn as his chief counsel, and the two began a campaign of intimidation and repression of both communists and gays. In 1953, Eisenhower issued Executive Order 10450, which prohibited homosexuals from working for the US government or its contractors. 5,000 people lost their jobs, and they were also forced out of the closet at a time where that meant social pariah status. That order actually stayed on the books until 1995, when Clinton swapped it for his don't ask, don't tell policy. Boo. Yeah. 
One of those fired was Frank Kameny, who became a key figure in the US gay rights movement, advocating against sodomy laws, campaigning to have homosexuality removed from the official list of mental disorders, and he also pursued the first ever civil rights claim in court on grounds of sexual orientation. With McCarthy, Cohn began attacking the Voice of America radio service that was run by the State Department in Europe and also the United States Information Agency. Cohn travelled around Europe with a box of index cards, ransacking USIA libraries, removing all books by people that he and McCarthy had deemed to be communists or fellow travellers, and also interrogating uh, Voice of America employees on television. Cohn's European book burning tour and books were burned by these libraries. Uh, took place with the help of a young anti-communist he'd enlisted named G. David Shine. Shine was the heir to a huge hotel empire, and he worked unpaid alongside Cohn. And it's he who brings the evil twink energy to this week's podcast. Oh, good, we couldn't do without it. <laughs> what so, a shit-faced little Nazi this guy is, Jesus. Yeah. So Shine and Cohn were rumoured to be lovers, although that's not actually never been proved, proven. Um, well, neither was the fact that any of these people were communists. That didn't stop uh, him from ruining their lives. This is true. But when McCarthy and Cohn began their investigations into the U.S. Army, the Army actually enlisted Shine. Um, Cohn said this was a sort of retaliation for their investigations. And so Cohn began to pressure the Army for special privileges for Shine and demanding that they stop trying to enlist him. This led in 1954 to the Army McCarthy hearings, where Cohn and McCarthy were accused of using their undue influence to prevent Shine's enlistment. Although McCarthy was eventually cleared, Cohn was found to have attempted to influence Army policy and was forced to resign as chief counsel. McCarthy himself was later censured, and that was the effective end of his ability to whip up the witch hunts. And McCarthy died in 1957 from hepatitis after turning to alcohol um, and having his career ending. But... Cone didn't let it stop him. He emerged unscathed and uh, went into private practice, and from there his career blossomed as a lawyer. For 30 years in New York, he was known as one of the most powerful and dangerous lawyers in the city. His clients included the shipping magnate and husband of Jackie O, Aristotle Anassis, uh, the New York Yankees, the owners of Studio 54, numerous mafia figures, and even the Catholic Archdiocese of New York. Although he was a registered Democrat, he was a big supporter of most Republican presidential candidates, and he lived a famous or infamous life on the New York social scene from the late 50s to the 1980s. And I think that speaks a little bit to the flexibility of the U.S. party system still at this time in the mid-20th century, where really well into the 1970s you have a fair number of very conservative Democrats, um, especially from southern states, who are... um, right-wing economically, and also, of course, uh, many of them uh, in favor of racial segregation. The so-called Dixie Democrats. The so-called Dixie Democrats, yeah. And then you also have kind of urban, liberal Republicans who have accepted the New Deal consensus to some extent. Um, And so it's just much less of a shock uh, or much less of a big deal that somebody who's a registered Democrat would be supporting um, national Republican candidates and would be, in some sense, a movement conservative. Yeah, and that situation sort of remained right up until the Reagan era. Yeah. Which Ray Cohn was important in. 
Oh, good. Yeah. Um, so Ray Co- uh, Roy Cohn had a reputation. He was a man who could get things done, fix problems, but he was also a man you could trust regardless of any ethical concern at all. That's why he became the lawyer to two people who'd become probably the most important men in the world, Rupert Murdoch and Donald J. Trump. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. So Roy Motherfucker. Cohn- <laughs> Roy Cohn's relationship with Trump starts in the early 70s. Um, in 1973, Trump, who with his daddy's money and help, was starting his ill-fated career as a property developer, was accused by the Justice Department of violating the Fair Housing Act by imposing impossible and discriminatory limits on renting housing to African Americans. Well, it's a good thing that all that racism stuff got cleared up back then and isn't yeah. plaguing any of us now. Uh, Trump countersued in 1975, and he lost. Uh, and he was given terms which were supposed to redress his discriminatory renting policies. But he was back in court again in 1978 on charges of violating the 1975 agreement. Um, but throughout that process, Cohn became a mentor to Trump, teaching him how to manipulate the world of New York politics to his own financial advantage. And he set the ground for Trump's political career and political ethics in the process. Cohn was uh, also representing Rupert Murdoch in his dealings with the Reagan administration. And he's actually credited as being the person who introduced and instigated a professional relationship between Rupert Murdoch and Donald Trump. Oh, thanks. All right. Jesus. Uh, Cohn was actually vital in securing Reagan's victory, in fact, because he was involved in what was almost certainly bribery at the the Liberal Party of New York to run his preferred candidate, therefore splitting opposition votes to Reagan. And his partner in this crime was none other than the infamous and now arrested Roger Stone, who is... (laughs) Yeah, there's literally not a shitty person in late 20th century American politics who he is not close personal and professional friends with. (laughs) No one can see me doing this, but I'm like, my glasses are off, and I'm like slowly massaging my temples with my hands and trying to become as small in my chair as possible. Jesus, this asshole. Yeah, if you don't know about Roger Stone, he's an astonishing figure. One of the most manipulative, powerful, eccentric, evil characters in US political history, probably. He is, and you know, if we had a podcast called Bad Cucks instead of Bad Gays, we could profile him extensively yeah in fact to give you a measure of him uh he has a tattoo of his political hero's face across his back and his political hero is richard nixon imagine getting richard nixon's face tattooed on your body (laughs) it's not because he agrees with them it's just so good looking (laughs) um there's actually a netflix documentary about roger stone called get me roger stone which is really worth a watch he's he's an astonishing an astonishingly talented man and also, like Cohn, completely without any sort of ethics whatsoever. Just power is his only interest. Anyway, uh, in 1984, Roy Cohn was diagnosed with AIDS. Cohn's switchboard operator, who used to routinely eavesdrop on his calls and record the conversations, said that upon being diagnosed, he asked the doctor, should I commit suicide now or later? But he refused to ever publicly acknowledge either that he was gay or had AIDS, and he claimed at the end of his life that he was suffering from cancer of the liver. He was actually one of the first ever people on the AZT trials. Oh, good. I'm glad that they really prioritised the right folks. Well, the suggestion is probably that he um, bribed his way onto the trial. 
Are you saying that in the United States of America, very wealthy and powerful people have a different experience with the medical system than people who are not very wealthy and powerful? Yeah. Shocking. Despite having been charged federally three times with professional misconduct throughout the 70s and 80s, including witness tampering and perjury, it wasn't until 1986 that he finally faced some sort of justice, because in that year he was disbarred by the New York State Supreme Court for unethical and unprofessional conduct, which included misappropriation of clients' funds, lying on a bar application, and pressuring a client to amend his will. I say pressuring a client, the actual case was that he went into the client's hospital room when he was in a coma, put a pen into his hand, and then manipulated his hand to sign his signature on the form. Which isn't astonishing. Like, why not just fake his signature? I... But did why do we know why he did that? Was it to give himself money, or was it? Yeah, to... he signed himself into the will, himself and the client's child into the will. Jesus. Um, but in the end, due to the that, that uh, the fact he was disbarred uh, and general life decisions he'd made, he actually died totally penniless a few months later on August the second, nineteen eighty six. Roger Stone himself said that, um, quote, his absolute goal was to die completely broke and owing millions to the IRS. He succeeded in that. So what is Roy Cohn's legacy? Well, when President Trump was totally exasperated with his lawyer's inability to make the Mueller investigation into collaboration of the uh, Russian government go away, he's said to have slammed his fist on the table and screamed, where's my Roy Cohn? But perhaps the last word on Roy Cohn's life should go to the words that certified good gay Tony Kushner gave him in Angels in America. And in this scene, he's uh, talking to his doctor, who's just given him a diagnosis of AIDS. And this is the quote. Your problem, Henry, is that you're hung up on words, on labels, gay, homosexual, lesbian. You think they tell you who a person sleeps with, but they don't tell you that. Like all labels, they refer to one thing and one thing only. Where does a person so identified fit in the food chain, in the pecking order? Not ideology or sexual taste, but something much simpler. Clout. Who owes me favours? Not who I fuck or who fucks me, but who will pick up a pho the phone when I call? To someone who doesn't understand this, homosexual is what I am because I sleep with men, but this is wrong. Homosexuals are not men who sleep with other men. Homosexuals are men who, in 15 years of trying, can't get a pissant anti-discrimination bill through city council. They are men who know nobody and who nobody knows. Now, Henry, does that sound like me? You've, uh, you've done the impossible here, I think, um, and stunned me into silence. It's, it's hard to know where to go from there, um, but I think I'll try to sort of formulate the beginning of a discussion this way and, and think about how there's a lot of themes that have been coming up throughout this whole season. Um, we've seen people who are um, obsessed with power, and we've seen people who will collaborate with incredibly right-wing political movements that end up killing their own. Um, and we've seen people who are um, obsessed with their own masculinity, or with the idea that being gay somehow doesn't mark them, um, and that they're somehow exercising these tastes, but it's not, you know, a part of sort of how they think about themselves. Um, we've seen 
people who are enormously deceptive. Uh, we've seen evil twinks. And is Roy Cohn the, not just a bad gay, but like the epitome of the bad gay? I mean, it's hard to rate somebody as being worse than, again, a literal Nazi. But I find myself thinking about Cohn as being the epitome of uh, all of these themes that we've talked about, class, race, um, you know, all of this stuff together. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think he is. He really sums up all those 20th century attitudes and he lived through that entire period of of social change for homosexuals. And within that, he consistently took the path that would benefit solely himself. I think the fact that he was such an integral part of the Lavender Scare also sums up this dynamic we've seen throughout this, which is, yeah, uh, always um, choosing not to go with a collective liberation for gay people. And not only choosing not to go with it, but choosing to fight it at every step of the way. I mean, choosing to commit yourself to the politics of destroying people who are like you. Yeah, He's quintessentially anti-solidarity, purely individualist, but also um, only he's interested in destructive power for its own sake, almost. You know, like he's he's not interested in um, he's he doesn't have like a sort of sincere belief in something that we would regard as evil, but he's purely indulging in destruction for its own for its own sake and for his own enrichment. And what does it say about the emerging political movement right in the U.S., um, which I think about as basically being a pretty easy-to-understand evolution from um, the Dixiecrats of the 1950s being opposed to segregation into Barry Goldwater in the uh, mid-60s through to Reagan through to the Bush era and through to Trump, and I think it's a pretty sort of steady evolution, and I think looking at Cohn helps us see it as an evolution rather than thinking that there's some dramatic break between all of that and Trump. Um, but what does it say about that emerging movement that one of its champions is somebody who has no ideological commitments whatsoever, um, but is instead just committed to seeing how far you can take destructive power? And that's kind of the motivating impulse of the conservative movement as a whole, don't you think? Uh, in the United States. Yeah. 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 Since we, Reagan. Absolutely. Um, and before Reagan, I mean, this, the, all of this stuff that's sort of building up to Reagan, um, it's just, you know, at the point where the policies that are supported by folks like Reagan and the Bushes and Trump aren't even making the upper middle class richer anymore. Like it's really become just about increasing the economic power of this incredibly tiny number of billionaires. I mean, the three richest people in America have as much wealth as the bottom half of all Americans. And that's something that is created by a legacy of policy that begins with the kind of first revolts against the New Deal, these red scares and these expulsions of communists, and builds right up in a continued line through um, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, who goes along with it, um, Bush, Obama, who largely goes along with it, and now Trump. Now comes the part of the show where we awkwardly ask people for money. 
we don't have any sponsors and we're not beholden to any big media company. We made this because we think these are important stories to tell and we want to be able to keep sharing them with you. And so, in proper idealistic millennial style, we've got a Patreon for you to check out. And Patreon is a way for people to support creators, good gays like us, to keep making the things that they make. So our Patreon is at www.patreon.com slash badgayspod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash badgayspod. And we've got a lot of great rewards for you. If you give five bucks or more a month, we'll send you a recommended reading list every month with the latest publications from me and Hugh and some other articles on queer political topics that we think are essential reading. Including stuff from the dark corners of the internet that might not be so easy to find. Higher tiers include physical gifts like zines and novels. Whatever you give is really appreciated, and we thank you so much for your support. That's patreon.com slash badgayspod. And saying nice things is always free, so if you're enjoying the show, you can rate us five stars and write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us find new audiences. Thanks. One thing I also think is interesting in looking at here, which is probably pure conjecture, but is looking at the relationship between uh, Conan Trump and... um, the psychological makeup, the form of masculinity that they adopt as a reaction to something, um, as part of their personality. But it seems clear to me that Roy Cohn lived in terror of being understood and conceived as a homosexual because he regarded homosexuals as weak. And And then looking at Trump, who seems to also have this extremely strange relationship with patriarchal power of some sort who seems really um deprived of uh any sort of empathy as well yeah and maybe that reminds us a little bit of somebody like him you know who's um although what i mean the difference is that Rame comes up with a way of making sense of what he is right he Rame builds this incredibly vile and violent masculinist image where, and we remember that letter to Hirschfeld's journal from the first episode, these gay Nazis are thinking of themselves as not homosexuals because homosexuals are weak and Jewish and socialist and they are some other thing, but they're making this other thing that they are and trying to advocate for it openly. And Cohn is literally just... I mean, is he? No, he's not. He's just running from everything. Yeah. It's like, um, it's at least, you never want to say at least the Nazis, but, you know, at least these Nazis had an idea. You know, Rehm seems genuinely ideologically committed to a horrifying evil project, and Cohn seems like the man without qualities. Well, it's, yeah, and it's fascinating that, he, that Roger Stone says the end, of, the end of his life, his dream is to have left nothing except that the government, he owes the government money. But, you know, the sum total of his life is nothing. Nothing has been produced of any worth, goodness. You know, there's no legacy of any joy. What 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 has he given to the world? Nothing. Fear. Destroyed lives. Destroyed gay men's lives. Destroyed lesbians' lives. Just a, a truly terrible person. I mean, the other thing to think about there is the connection to folks like Leopold and Loeb and Ronnie Cray, you know, who just think that they're above everything. And I wish that I could say, well, he died penniless, he died alone, you know, he got what he deserved, but unfortunately, he won. I mean, these people run the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
as we look back over the entire season, I think one thing that's really important that has come out of this is the fact that some of these ideo ideologies of these men have emerged from their relationship with their sexuality and that these are um, strands of gay life and gay politics that have existed, do exist, and they're part of gay history. And we need to think and acknowledge that rather than just looking to our, these heroes to understand our past, to also understand that the reason we're in our position that we're in today and the reason that the gay rights movement in the US looks like it looks is because also of gay men like Ray, Roy Cohn. Yeah, absolutely. And people who are less extreme than Roy Cohn, but who are like Andrew Sullivan or who yeah. you know, have made whatever accommodations with power that they've made. And the other thing that I think thinking this way helps us do is to see beyond a kind of essentialist view where your sexuality is going to imply that you have a certain kind of politics. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think um, we have a rich and wonderful tradition of the gay left um, that I think you and I both uh, admire a lot and both see ourselves as trying to carry on. But um, there are also many other gay politics, and I think all of it speaks to the fact that there is no essential quality of being gay, that we have to figure out every day what being this way and living this way in the world is going to mean for us and what that's going to produce. Yeah, and faced with those pressures of growing up in a heterosexual society, which root out of heterosexuality do we take? Do we take a aggressive, um, destructive uh, Roy Cohn response to this, this aggression and, and drive it into a reinforcement of masculinist, um, self-hating uh, ways of life? Or do we choose to try and open up and build a politics and a sense of identity and a sense of community around fundamental ideas of empathy and solidarity? And about taking the experience of being other and trying to use that to figure out how we might learn to live in the world with one another. And I think that's the question that motivates a lot of my work. So I think we can agree that our judgment on Roy Cohn is that he is uh, one of the very worst gays. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So if people want to learn more about Roy Cohn, and if you do decide to learn more about Roy Cohn, I encourage you to have a bucket of lye near you to, you know, scrub off your entire skin after reading, where would they turn? Well, Roy Cohn's actually a rich source of uh, think pieces and long reads in the American press, so actually just a good Google of, uh, of the press is, is worth a start, but there's also, um, there's also his biography, Citizen Cohn, The Life and Times of Roy Cohn by Nicholas Van Hoffman. And there was a film that was shown at Sundance a few years ago called Where's My Roy Cohn by Matt Tyernauer. Um, and on the general subject, there's a book called The Lavender Scare, The Cold War Persecution of Gays and Lesbians in the Federal Government by David K. Johnson. I co-sign that is a really excellent book. Um... Well, that brings our episode and our first season to a close. Thanks so much for joining us on our journey through some of gay history's worst villains and most complicated anti-heroes. Uh, we've had a lot of fun doing this, and we hope you have as well. 
We are planning a second season to come in the next months, and we will release details about dates and other information as soon as we're ready. And if you've got any ideas of who we should profile in future episodes, feel free to tweet us at badgazepod. And of course, um, making a second season isn't free, and uh, you can visit our Patreon, patreon.com slash badgazepod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash badgazepod. Um, the more we raise there, the more that we can improve production standards, um, spend more time doing research, um, produce in a way that's maybe more engaging than just our voices, um, and make more episodes of the show. So, uh... Thank you so much to all of you who've already supported us there, and uh, really every little bit helps out a lot. Um, you can follow the show on Twitter at BadGazePod. You can follow me on Twitter at BenWritesThings. And you can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.